0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I think it's episode 22. I'm joined, as always, with Dr. Austin Baraki. Austin, what's going on, buddy? Hey, man. I'm doing all right. What's going on with you? It's another day in life, uh, getting ready to go down under and uh, dropkick a kangaroo. So, nice. you know. Nice. Well, yeah.
1: We've had some big developments recently coming out in terms of announcements that we
0: made, things like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, so guided programming. Yeah, we just put this in the newsletter. So when you're hearing this, this it's live. It's on the website. Definitely put that in the show notes uh, in the description below. Austin, so what's the purpose? You want to tell us the purpose of the guided programming thing? Take people through a little bit like why we did
1: this? So, I mean, the beauty of what we do with novices is that it's nice, it's simple, it's basic, it works for a very large, uh, you know, proportion of of, uh, of people who are getting started with this stuff. But it's temporary; it doesn't, unfortunately, work forever. Otherwise, we'd all be squatting like three or four thousand pounds by now. So, a lot of people are intimidated and don't know exactly how to approach the post novice phase of training. And so, there are multiple options out there for people um, to uh, to approach that. And so. You know, we have previously done the templates, which are an option that provides people with some with some guidance and some some uh, you know a, an approach to post novice training that is relatively low cost, accessible from that standpoint. But of course, it doesn't come with regular contact with a coach for guidance over the period of time that you're doing it. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have one on one coaching that we all do, um, where we're in near constant contact with a lot of our a lot of our trainees, writing their programming week to week or or month to month. Uh, doing regular form checks with all of them uh, and and things like that But that's obviously on the other end of the you know cost spectrum that some people are, are not unfortunately able to able to do So we wanted to do something kind of in between to help people out with kind of a long-term uh, programming option that lasts longer than say 8-12 weeks and uh, and um, that allows them with sem- somewhat more regular contact with a coach that we'll be able to provide. Basically, the idea being that people will sign up and, and uh, kind of answer some questions that help us stratify them into various training groups. Based on that, they'll be placed on a specific training group that's kind of generally in their demographic and their level of training advancement, and they'll get ongoing programming uh, over, the, over the long term. They'll have, they'll be kind of within their group. They'll be have access to regular form checks and contact with coaches and things like that. The, only, the the big difference between it and one on one coaching is that they don't have, again, one on one kind of specific individualized uh, programming that more advanced lifters tend to tend to benefit from.
0: Uh, no, so so yeah, it's a continuum, and I think that's what you're saying. On the one end, you have the templates, which are very general, relatively inexpensive, and but still high quality for post novice programming. So you've been training for a few months, you've exhausted the novice linear progression, you're not interested in wasting the next year of your life resetting five and ten percent at a time and not making any progress. Uh, so then you need an option and, or you potentially your goals change. And so we have that, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the one-on-one coaching, just very boutique, very, uh, um, you know, individualized. There's a, a lot of contact with your coach directly. And unfortunately it doesn't, does isn't, uh, uh impossible for a lot of people, not just from a financial standpoint, but just a time commitment. You know, if you're always traveling and maybe you're not available to actually send in check-ins and regular form checks and stuff like that. So you need something in the middle. And so we had this big gray zone and, uh, I felt like that was a pretty good market for us to get into. So guided programming is going to start. The cool thing is uh, we're working with some very smart folks for data collection, as far as getting feedback on what we're actually putting out there, and then being able to retool it uh, every time a new wave starts. So we learn more from our from our uh, our audience, from our from our clients, and uh, I think the community thing is going to be cool too. You know, you get a couple hundred people in that group, all talking about strength training or or, or and resistance training, and and it, it's going to be it's going to be a cool concept, I think. Yeah, I agree. Excited to get it started. And so that's,
1: as you mentioned, we're g- it's going to be getting started kind of in, in waves. So people who kind of sign up together, they'll be grouped into a cohort that kind of starts at the same time. And then what we learn from them can then be applied to the next wave that gets started at some later date and, and so on.
0: Right. Uh, other thing we came out with, the press template. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so So the internet wants to know, Austin, what is your best press and I keep saying it's 225. Is yeah, it more than I, that? Yeah, no, I press
1: 225. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't do much with the press. But, but <laughs> right, it's, right, right. It was like but the minimum baseline a... that I had to get to to say, okay, I have done this before.
0: Yeah, and a 225 is nothing to sneeze at. That's, you know, 25 pounds over your body weight on any given day, and you don't specifically train for the press, and right now you have one functioning elbow. so yes, that's know, right. that's, Yeah, so that's, that's pretty good. You know, the, the thing was is there's been a lot of talk and – uh, almost mysticism about oh how do you get the press to go up and you know uh we I felt like we've made some really uh good strides towards figuring out how to actually program the press um, as evidenced by the results that not only I've gotten but like Alan's gotten and then yeah, we've put, put on, like
1: 40 pounds on Alan's press in a few months which was like I was even surprised I was like damn he's responding really well to this stuff <laughs> so.
0: yeah same and and you know it's the same thing so I have my best press as of, uh, well, a year, oh, a year like ago, two, it was like 264. 265. Yeah. Yeah, 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 264, and then uh, I started kind of playing with the press a little more, and it went up to 275, and then I pressed 295 in training, and um, yeah, anyway. So, the press template's cool, it's out there, you're definitely still gonna train the squat and the deadlift hard, it's really perfect if you're going to a USSF meet, or you really just wanna work on the press. Um, it's not gonna, it's not like a, all you're doing is pressing, it's not that small of uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <pressing. laughs> We had an alternate name for the program. It's going to be the California method, but you know, thought, <laughs> they thought California would tax us too much. For yeah. That, so um, okay, so I think that's it for for like announcements. Uh, also, should we start calling you Mister Six Hundred uh, Five? Well, so I'm currently in a peaking block, and so
1: for the past twelve weeks of me doing singles on my way to this peaking block, my pra- my squat single each week has gone up by a little bit, and so Six Hundred Five was last week. I still have three weeks left, so I'm gonna you know see what else i mean i expect there's more in the tank i mean look if i could it really looked like i could have tripled 590 which would be insane but it tells me that there's a whole lot more than 605 there so
0: i just need to you know do it yeah one interesting thing so so i have confidence in you and and my my best guess is that on your best day under the best circumstances with the optimal level of motivation right you could go out and squat 635 there's a gun to your br- a gun to your head <laughs> Right. But I'm serious. I mean, on, legitimately. Look, if you tripled 585 on your deadlift prior to you pulling 655, you know, well, 665. You were said, "Well, I could deadlift 635." Yeah. Like no doubt in your brain. Right. Right. No doubt. Yeah. But uh, so so I think if uh, we agree that 590 was tripleable, yeah. <laughs> which I which I do. Then 635 should be no be be fine. If you don't squat 635. I lose, then, I lose all credibility instantly. No, it's not credibility. It's just that it tells you something. It tells you a few things. It tells you that perhaps the peaking block, you know, it gives you information about the length of the peaking sure. block and yeah. perhaps your efficiency on the squat. Yeah. So as a, as a little interesting aside, which is not have to do with what we're talking about today, but I still find it very interesting to discuss, um, if you want to get better at singles... Because you're either a powerlifter, you're going to a meet, or that's what holds value in your training. And, and I can make the argument that even if you're not a competitive powerlifter, that prioritizing singles is useful at times because it's probably the most accurate information that you can get. It's uh, less subject to noise from other stuff. Like a five RM has multiple different components that contribute to to actually generating the five RM. There's that's not just pure strength. Whereas a one RM uh, is is more uh, pure strength. If you want to get better at singles, you have to practice singles. So, so a program that's designed to get you stronger that is lacking regular practice, regular exposure to singles, is, is not a good program unless you're a novice. In which case, this doesn't. This whole conversation doesn't really apply to you. But, but just taking your set of heavy set of five up on a weekly basis doesn't tell me enough about your strength improvement. Other, you know, uh, when it comes to a one RM. Well, particularly over the, particularly over a short term, if
1: you see, if you see changes of a 5RM over a short term, I mean, obviously over a long term, if you're, if you're, if your working sets of five, go from 85 to 275, like you got a lot stronger. But over the course of say three weeks or something like that, if, you know, if, if they went up five pounds at a time, again, that can be within the, within kind of the margin of, of performance fluctuation week to week. And it's hard, harder to
0: interpret than something like a single. Yep. And uh, so that was actually interesting when we were talking about, um, uh, doing this sort of strength training registry, like getting data and like trying to really parse it out. So the one of the main arguments that we got both uh, at large, like from people on the internet, and then within our, our own our peer group was that you can't really use the three sets of five as a um, as a validated way to assess initial levels of strength. So for instance, you have a person come in on the very first session of the starting strength novice linear progression, and you start them at 85 pounds for three sets of five. Well, you're taking in a bunch of subjective stuff like, oh, this is where their form was still good right. and it was hard. Right. And it doesn't mean that you cannot try to validate that method, but there's a lot of noise there too, right? And, what I, and again, what I mean by that is perhaps if you, you know, maybe maybe they could have done 90 pounds or 95 pounds right. for three sets yeah. of five. You, yeah. you don't really know what their absolute strength was. Um, and so it's not perfect. Where And so the people, you know, it's hard to say if, you're, if your lift... For instance, if you if you did 550 for a set of five uh, and then sometime later you did 575 for a triple, okay, I actually don't know if that's, you got stronger, right? Because the goalposts have changed and, and and that's an even tighter example of the problem with assessing strength gain from the beginning of the novice progression to the end. Like you have somebody who's well-trained, who's, you know, doing a a maximal set of, of, uh, of rep, uh, you know, Uh, a rep effort and uh you still don't know it's like 550 for five is about the same to me as 575 for a triple which is about the same as like 610 for a single you know like that's it's all the same so if (laughs) if on week one you did 550 for five and then week two you did 575 for three and then week three you did 605 or 610 for a single you you didn't get any stronger over three weeks you just changed the goal posts yeah Whereas on the novice progression, if you had somebody who on day one they did 85 for three sets of five, and then they did, you know, three d- a week later they did 95 for three sets of five, I actually don't know if they got stronger within that period of time. They, I, I, think, don't, I mean, don't know. Even, even back when there was this whole, there was, there was the whole
1: argument and, and they were talking, you know, Rip was talking about super compensation and all this kind of stuff, and they draw kind of the adaptation curve with a bunch of like, they called it like fuzz around the line of performance, and that falls squarely within that kind of line of you know the error bar around your around your kind of absolute level of performance at any given time. Yeah, most people at the beginning they could they could do five more pounds on day one because if they can't do five more pounds on day one, then the coach who set that weight on their back messed
0: up. Sorry, I just got a really long Instagram question, so I'm not gonna answer him, but we can answer it here on the podcast because people want to know. So just just yeah, oh, just perfect. as an aside, right, like there you go, take it away. Texting or. Uh, Sorry, just as a side, like DMing somebody who's not your coach, um, who doesn't know a lot about you and your training history, a long winded question about your training is difficult to deal with as a coach. I I, want to know so many more things, but then I realize that I have other clients that I have responsibilities towards. So it's it's difficult. So, hey, Jordan, I went through the bridge. Uh, on the program, you describe GPP days. On those days, you mentioned cardio, like rowing, or assault bike. My gym doesn't have a prowler, rowing machine, or an assault bike. It has a treadmill, stair machine, bicycles, and elliptical. Which one would you suggest? Any of them. Doesn't matter. In general, I don't like running for people who aren't good runners because there's a lot of ground reactive force and it can potentially be a big stress, but it doesn't matter. Uh, question two. This is a multi-part question. There's, it looks like, four, four questions. Uh, never in the book you mentioned pendlay rose. you mentioned is barbell rose, And I know these two are not the same. They are. One just has an eponym and the other doesn't. So they're the same. Number three, if it was a typing mistake when you wrote the file, which happens and I don't blame you or Austin on the pendlay barbell rows, do I do both the eccentric and concentric part of the lift or only the concentric? I challenge you to do a concentric only row eccentric down to the floor like a tempo row i'm just saying <laughs> yeah well i'm just saying it's like doing a concentric only deadlift which you could you would just drop it so uh i know the bar has to start off oh another row question i know the bar has to start <laughs> another row question i know the bar has to start off the ground after each rep do i start again or the bar never touches the ground until the set is finished it's a it's a row it starts from the ground period Boom. I, great. There you go. <laughs> well, well. so how many DMs do you get a day? Uh, 15. How many of them are from your clients? Uh, oh, oh, I wasn't counting, one's from my clients. Oh, right, okay, so 15 non-client DMs. How many of those questions do you think are better suited for the forum? Which is at barbellmedicine.com backslash forum. Most of them, yes. Yeah, and so the thing is, you're you're asking effectively, you know, for, for advice, which is totally fine. That's why we're here. You know, part of our thing is being a good resource for folks. It's just that instead of it, if we answer one person, that's a t- a certain time commitment compared to answering many people. So I'll just direct everyone to the forum. It's not. I don't mean stay out of our DMs. What I mean is, we can reach more uh, people, better serve the community if we get to answer these. Yeah, yeah. If we if, if we if you ask on the forum. So hey, go to the forum. Uh, Hang out there, we'll help you guys, and then Austin and I, Austin and I won't won't you know, uh, uh, have a cerebrovascular accident when people ask us what shoes are, what shoes <laughs> you wearing. Speaking of, what shoes oh, yeah, are you wearing I right wasn't now? I counting DM specifically asking me what shoes I'm wearing. But that's <laughs> another fifteen. Yeah, yeah. What what uh what <laughs> what shoes are you wearing right now? Do you have? I shoes don't on? have shoes on right now. <laughs> yeah, that boy. I got sliders. All right. So today we're gonna talk about incense. NSAIDs standing for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So the non-steroid steroid podcast. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> our views are going down to five. So all right, let's start with let's start with what are NSAIDs? Austin, you want to take us through just a brief overview of what NSAIDs actually? Yeah, are? Yeah, so so basically
1: they are kind of generally considered to be anti-inflammatory drugs in nature. They're used a lot for analgesic effect or for pain relieving effects, and so. Physiologically, kind of inflammation is a super complex process. There's tons of, uh, you know, chemical messengers that go on, cytokines, all kinds of inflammatory molecules, cells, cellular inflammation gets involved a lot of the time. There's tons and tons and parts of it, but there are tons and tons of uh, parts to it. Um, but one pathway in particular is one that takes a molecule called arachidonic acid, uh, and then it converts it through, through a series of enzymatic reactions into a set of into any one of a set of uh, kind of molecular signaling molecules called uh, prostaglandins, um, among other things. And so these prostaglandin molecules, they have lots of different functions. Uh, they can kind of contribute towards uh, kind of recruiting inflammatory cells to the area, it can sensitize, uh, you know, nervous tissue, and, and I won't say cause pain because they don't do that, uh, because pain, as we know, is more complicated than that. Um, but they can kind of contribute to nociception, which can then be interpreted as pain. Um,
0: nociception. Is this like is nocebo? No, wait, no, wait, no, no, they're no. the same. No, no, no. no just means it just creates a, it, it just
1: creates a, a noxious, a noxious stimulus at the level of the tissue can contribute to generating fevers, uh, lots of, lots of other things. And so, you know, a lot of people, when they think about, uh, anti-inflammatories they'll commonly hear about or get prescribed something like prednisone which interferes in this process kind of at an earlier at an earlier stage because that's a corticosteroid so that's a steroid molecule that acts to um, have anti-inflammatory effects as well as well as tons of other both beneficial in some circumstances and harmful effects in others. Um, But beyond the steroid uh, anti-inflammatories being glucocorticoids or corticosteroids whatever you want to call it, there's this next step in the process um, which is induced by an enzyme called cyclooxygenase, or COX, C-O-X. There's COX1 and COX2 uh, kind of distributed throughout the body. And so these, this particular enzyme is what converts some of the byproducts of that initial kind of arachidonic acid conversion into then things like prostaglandins and some other molecules that like induce clotting and some other things like that. Um, and so this is all Kind of beneficial stuff in the setting of your body kind of generating an inflammatory response to, say, heal a tissue insult or something like that. Like if you get stabbed in the thigh or something like that, you'll have some local inflammation to kind of kick start the healing process and immune cells will come in, clean up the
0: mess, things like that. Um, I, I always like to think about the immune cells like fighting the good fight. Yeah. Like the Calvary cal Call that like goes off, like it's a trumpet, like, and then, you know here we come to save the day until and then, until until you
1: have an autoimmune disease then they're then they're, right, then they're right, all right. psychotic and going crazy and inappropriately uh, inappropriately uh, doing their thing you know
0: well that's like the south in the american in the american <laughs> revolution i mean that's the way i get way I conceptualize itself. it yes yeah, it's attacking itself and you know it's just, you know yeah a lot of pride but not yeah. you know the, so the, the, uh, we just lost we just lost the last four viewers <laughs> so,
1: one. So, so given the extensive amount of uh, you know side effects, negative I won't say side, just adverse effects to taking things like uh, corticosteroids like prednisone in just for anti-inflammatory purposes, particularly over the long term, we have this other kind of option that's a non-steroid anti-inflammatory. Um, and that's what NSAID stands for, non steroid anti-inflammatory drugs. And there's a whole big family of them. There are oral versions, there are topical versions, there are injectable versions, both intramuscular and, and IV versions of NSAIDs that are used in all kinds of different scenarios. Um, and so they, they inhibit this COX enzyme, prevent you from producing these prostaglandin molecules and thereby Lower inflammation, reduce the nociception that can then be, you know, contribute to pain. They can reduce fevers, so they have what's called an antipyretic effect, reducing body temperature in the setting of uh, a fever that you might have for whatever reason. Um, And so, you know, they're they're used very commonly for pain. um, And given what we talked about previously about pain, particularly in the context of lifting and training, they're used a lot by lifters. And so that's why we thought it'd be a relevant topic to talk about to kind of. bust some myths and talk about where they might be useful, more useful, less useful, and precautions and things like that.
0: Yeah, and I think the other interesting thing that's happened recently in our sort of strength conditioning field, particularly the CrossFit world, is that people have been just, you know, shitting all over NSAIDs like, they're going to do bad things to you and decreasing the inflammation or even using ice. Like as a, so so like on a spectrum of like, anti-inflammatory sort of sure. thing like ice is like the lowest sure. common denominator yeah uh you know kelly starrett famously and i say famously because hit that youtube video's gotten you know millions of views and these articles millions of views about don't take NSAIDs don't use ice because it decreases the inflammatory response you know in soft tissues which will ultimately this is the tldr uh that's not true <laughs> go figure go figure um yeah, it's it's just been super popular to talk about, and, and these things can be useful at times, and uh, there's also been some talk of, oh, if you take NSAIDs, it decreases your testosterone levels or decreases your muscle protein synthesis response to training or uh, or all these things, you know, and, and this has happened in different permutations, not just with NSAIDs. This has happened with. People said, "Oh, if you take fish oil around training, it's got some anti-inflammatory effect, and that's going to blunt your training response." Uh, I'll cut to the chase. That's not true. Uh, oh, if you take vitamin C around training, it's going to blunt your training response. Again, I'll cut to the chase. Also, not true. Although, why are you taking vitamin C? It's probably another question. Did, yeah. Pro- probably don't need it. So it, it's just interesting that it's been talked about so so much. Like like uh, there's not a bunch of data on this. With but in fact there is. It's like When you have an idea and you're like, hmm, you know, I think that the inflammatory response is a normal part of the muscle remodeling repair mechanism that we go through training. And that if you inhibit it or mess with it by using medications, for instance, maybe that wouldn't be such a good thing. Well, that's a fine idea to have. But the next thing you have to do is go to the Google machine and (laughs) type that in there and then start looking at data because when you do that then you're like oh maybe this thing's actually more nuanced and that's what we're going to discuss today okay so you're saying that NSAIDs are not Tylenol
1: yeah so uh Tylenol does not fit into this category. I don't consider it to be an anti-inflammatory drug. It does have some action on that cyclooxygenase enzyme, but uh, sure. the thought, it, it's its kind of bizarre and it's been fascinating like through medical training when you learn about some of these medications that are used so commonly and then you're like, I wonder how that works. And you go to look it up and they're like, yeah, so it's still not fully understood how this medication works. And we're like, what right, the hell? Right, right. So Tylenol actually fits in that category. We have some understanding of how it works. It's thought to work on some of the cyclooxygenase enzymes particularly in the central nervous system in the brain, um, which is kind of interesting, but I don't consider it to be a, a, you know, like a peripheral anti-inflammatory medication.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think most clinicians would agree with you on that. It's yes, it definitely has analgesic. So uh, pain uh, alleviating effect, it definitely is an antipyretic. So in that it can alleviate some fever stuff. But as far as your typical NSAID, doesn't qualify. Uh, Aspirin certainly does. It's probably one of the original ones. Brief aside, just on some historical notes. So aspirin is acetylsalicylic acid. Uh, It was originally discovered as a form of willow bark. Uh, And then they were able to isolate in the late 1800s salicylic acid. But then when you try to, like, ingest it... uh, <laughs> ow <laughs> so they had to buffer it and they eventually buffered it with the uh into acetosalicylic acid in the late 1800s 1904 comes around these are some pharma uh, uh pharmaceutical like nerds at at Bayer, and are like hey we got it and then they made it so turn of the century Bayer pumps out some aspirin and that's like the first uh n that we have on the market uh, again from willow bark it was interesting if you look into like the where, like, what did, was aspirin, like, quoted to do? Pliny the Elder wrote, like, this whole book. Uh, I actually think it's Pliny, now, now that I say it out loud. But I like Pliny better. Like, I just imagine. You know, <laughs> uh, he was like, oh, 14 uses for this thing, right? And so if you mixed, he said that if you mixed aspirin with alcohol, that it would decrease your sex drive, uh, your libido, uh, acutely. And then, uh, but if you did it consistently enough, it would be gone forever. Oh no! Which maybe you start wondering, like, <laughs> is that a thing? So I actually looked, you know, into some data, and I couldn't find any evidence that any sort of any NSAID, particularly aspirin, has any effect on the libido. So maybe he was he was a little off on yeah, that one. Yeah. Any sort right. of bleeding disorder, he thought he thought that aspirin worked, which <laughs> backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so aspirin, if you had a clotting issue, would potentially sure. be useful. Yeah. Uh, depending on what the nature of that, but if you have a an issue where you're actively bleeding, you probably would not want to take aspirin. Yes. Yeah, because you just keep bleeding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, also abscesses or abscesses, which I think again was just the anti fever sort sure. of effect. But yeah, I was, was interesting to learn that about aspirin. I couldn't find as much data on ibuprofen's history or whatever. Uh, I also can't figure out where willow bark came from, except for like down in like Venezuela. Uh, when they, uh, you know, and, and somebody discovered it when they were looking for quinine. Ah, I see. Yeah. I
1: didn't know that either. Cool. I knew about the willow bark, not all that, not all that other, all that other history. So, uh,
0: all that other twud time wasted on useless <laughs> detail. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So yeah, but the common ones you're going to figure you're, you guys are going to come in contact with. So, uh, aspirin for sure. Ibuprofen, Motrin, again, ib- ibuprofen, naproxen, naproxen, um, you know, indomethacin You guys probably aren't gonna come in contact with. Hope not. Uh, yeah. yeah, diclofenac, uh, which is you know, meloxicam. Yeah, meloxicam. I mean. uh, also, if it's topical, it's gonna be Voltaren. Um, you know, any, so any one of those are
1: not. And then ketorolac or toradol. Yeah, toradol, is the sure. is the is the injectable one that you might receive intramuscularly or IV if you show up to the ER or in the hospital or something. Right.
0: Like that. Interestingly, tramadol. You're like, oh, toradol, tramadol. They the same? Nope.
1: No, do not take tramadol.
0: Yeah, that's the friendly, <laughs> friendly advice. Friendly advice. Yeah, would not recommend unless you know opioids are your thing. Probably, probably, probably not. And that's not a judgment thing. I mean, sometimes you don't get a choice. You, th- that, you know, somebody you trust is giving it to you, but yeah, they're not. It's not as non-steroidal. So, um, in general, we prefer non-steroidal anti-inflammatory uh, drugs for pain relief when we get away with them uh, instead of uh, uh, using opioids mm-hmm. for, for, for that. Sure. Yeah. For sure. So, you want to speak at all about like the efficacy? Um, I think. I think. There are basically two major things that you'd want to discuss the in general efficacy. Uh, one would be pain, so analgesic effect, mm-hmm. right? And then the other would be fever. Because really, really, that's the only stuff that you're using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for, like for real, it's pain and fever. You know? yeah. if, uh, Pliny was, uh, was a little off- all right. So Austin, let's go through like the efficacy of anti-inflammatories. Uh, so if, as far as their effect on pain and fever reduction, I think the other uses for anti-inflammatory, non-stororial anti-inflammatory is probably beyond the scope of this podcast. So let's we'll talk, stick with pain and, and uh, fever reduction.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, so there's been lots of research on this stuff in common painful conditions. For example, we talked about them a little bit on our uh, osteoarthritis episode where, for example, you know, there's lots of trials looking at the efficacy of these things compared to placebo or compared to acetaminophen or Tylenol for pain and they are they are reasonably effective uh, in terms of pain reduction for a lot of these conditions now what I'm getting always getting more and more interested in is going back to that data that I was initially looking at and looking at the response of the placebo group when they when they when they do these trials because of course when we do these randomized controlled trials for medic medications like this we're comparing something like, you know, an ibuprofen or or naproxen or something like that compared to placebo uh, to see if it outperforms just taking, you know, quote unquote, sugar pill kind of thing. And pretty reliably, there's always a decent proportion of people in the placebo group that report, you know, a significant pain reduction from taking, from taking placebo. But the idea with NSAIDs is that you can outperform that effect. You get whatever, whatever effect there is from just taking a pill in terms of pain reduction, because again, pain works weird like that. And then you get additional benefit on top of that for for a lot of painful conditions like osteoarthritis, for example. And some of the other conditions beyond just pain is just kind of inflammatory conditions in general which tend to which can tend to generate pain. For example, like in the setting of, you know, gout, gouty arthritis, we'll give some potent anti-inflammatory medications because that's like a profoundly inflammatory situation. It can also be very painful, but you know, we're treating specifically to reduce the inflammation and secondarily to that, reducing pain. Um, and so similarly, you know, similarly, they are useful to reduce fever. In general, I tend to err on, like when I'm in the hospital or something like that, I tend to err on using Tylenol first to reduce fever rather than using NSAIDs for fever alone just because, um, well, for multiple reasons, but Tylenols generally have less side effects when used at recommended dose ranges compared to uh, NSAIDs. And so if I can get the same fever reduction effect uh, using a different medication, particularly in... More ill hospitalized patients who tend to have all kinds of other issues going on than I tend to err on that side but they do they are they do tend to be fairly effective for reducing reducing pain and inflammation um, however it's also important to recognize that they're going to be more effective for situations where the pain is secondary to kind of inflammatory induced nociception if that makes sense so conditions where your pain is not really attributable to an inflammatory process uh, for example like neuropathic pain like if you have neuropathy or something like that that's not going to be particularly responsive to an NSAID medication if you have if you have some other non-inflammatory reason for pain for example if you have tendinopathy uh, that tends to not really do respond that well to you know uh, to NSAIDs so you hear you know, this is something that's super common in the training world: is for people to just load up on vitamin I when you have when you have tendinopathy, which is not a particularly effective way to manage that condition, and it certainly does not result in uh, healing or long-term improvement, such that you can get off of those medications. Um so so you were you know you were mentioning earlier a lot of the people who kind of uh talk a lot on the internet about how harmful NSAIDs are in terms of impairing adaptation there's also this interesting other side of the spectrum that I see a lot of within the training world who say that like you know vitamin I or ibuprofen is like the answer to everything uh under the sun and any kind of uh, any kind of uh setback you have you should take a bunch of Advil for which I don't necessarily agree with either
0: <laughs> I assume that this is Pliny the Elder. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> is that not yeah, the...
1: yeah, yeah. It's great well, for so, your elbow pain when, you, when you're when you squatting wrong rather than fixing your squat. So.
0: Yeah. And so, well, you know, so there's the Oxford analgesic uh, table, which is effectively, uh, it rates the number needed to treat uh, for... Uh, all like pain medications in general and acute pain and the outcome they're looking at is a 50% reduction in, in, in pain. Uh, so, so for instance, if you just took uh, uh, like ibuprofen uh, by itself or a similar uh, acting medication, it, it's funny because the NNT, like the middle of that number needed to treat is right in that like two to three range. So, so effectively if you treat, you know, three people with, Ibuprofen or a stronger uh, anti-inflammatory drug like uh, ketorolac or, or whatever, you get a fifty percent reduction in pain. Uh, you know, in one of the, in one of those people, but that number is better than morphine. Yeah. So, so the people are like, oh, I need something stronger. It's like, well, that may be true, but you may not need the the going to an opioid and morphine is certainly one of the strong ones. Um, is not is not necessarily indicated, uh, and I think. You know, we're talking about these adverse effects and certainly, well, let me, let me preface it like this, going into the number needed to treat the number needed to harm the, the sort of, uh, uh, relative risk ratio and all this other stuff for each type of cardiovascular event you can have, each kind of kidney event you can have, or gastrointestinal, uh, sort of complication that you can have, I think is beyond the scope of this podcast, but those in general are the side effects that we're looking at, right? Um, I I don't want to speak for you, but I'll just say for my own sort of like if we're if we're looking at this from a ten thousand foot view, I do not worry about that stuff for short term treatment, right? Like four or five days, up to a week. I don't really worry about it in fact you and I have both listened to that the, the uh, kidney boy <laughs> talk about they were giving these people so this massive... is the,
1: this is the the precision the precision trial is the name of the study for people who want to look up the data itself and they had a pretty large cohort of 65 year old a lot of a good proportion of women I think in the trial as well and they'd randomized them to celebrex and the proxen and ibuprofen at re- fairly high doses
0: yeah high doses regular to and they already had some in some evidence of Kidney disease, kidney failure prior to this, right? And they were one of the outcomes they were looking at was, uh, you know, worsening kidney function. Another outcome was gastrointestinal uh, uh, complications. And what are the rates on that? That they yeah. So I the, actually
1: I actually pulled up the. Let me let me quote the right. Uh, the right information here. So they had they had twenty four thousand uh, patients in the trial. So pr- about approximately a third, about eight thousand randomized to each group. It was a multi center uh, multi center trial. Sixty five percent of the patients were female. They were average age sixty three years. And so among the over the course of this uh, of this trial, there were uh, let's see. Between Celebrex and Naproxen, there was about 180 to 200 or so cardiovascular events in each in each of those groups. Uh, about 130 to 160 pe- people died in those groups among the 24,000 who were on these medications, um, and there were about 80 86 uh, gastrointestinal issues. So, for example, like GI bleeding, things like that, um, and there was about 50 to 70. Uh, issues with uh, renal function in terms of, like, kidney failure, things like that. Out of
0: 24,000 in these older people with evidence of, some evidence of kidney disease prior.
1: Yeah, so this was really surprising information just because, you know, we are, we are, I mean, I know myself in particular commonly dealing with this older, frail, uh, population, particularly that we see a lot in the hospital, with a number of, uh, you know, comorbid diseases, issues with history of GI bleeds, or they're on blood thinners, or they have chronic kidney disease, things like that. And w- and kind of the impression that we're given is that, like, even a single dose of an NSAID medication is, like, super high risk for these patients. And that seems to be overstated. Now, I'm not certainly not going to do what they did in this trial to patients just because it still makes me uncomfortable even though I have that data but I agree that for short term uh, I tend not to freak out about it unless they have very significant comorbid diseases if they have like horrific cardiovascular disease if they have you know bad cirrhosis tendency to, uh, bleeding bleeding tendencies you know they're 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 if they're almost to needing dialysis because their kidneys are so bad then I don't want to kind of feel like I'm potentially the person who's kicking them over the edge to dialysis, for example. So, so things like that, but, but definitely from this data, at least it seems like uh, that those risks are, you know, we, we fear them out of proportion to their absolute.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think again, short-term dosing for acute musculoskeletal based pain, I think, uh, which is probably the main recommendation that, the people listening and, and watching this are, are, are looking at. So again, uh, your low back is is a little sore for whatever reason. Again, it's, it's unlikely to be this acute traumatic injury. We've already talked about this, beat it to death, you know, but if you need to take some, an NSAID for it, I probably would not be worried about the side effects in in that particular case for a short course uh, of those. Um, that that being said, uh, I, you know, our... our Litigious society requires me to say that before starting or stopping any medication, you should definitely check with your <laughs> physician. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So, so in your in your case, you know, we both see patients on steady MD, and a lot of these folks are lifting, and occasionally have aches and pains, and and whatever. Um, you know, how comfortable are you saying, hey, go take uh, go take some some ibuprofen?
1: Yeah, so, so particularly when they message me for acute issues, I tend to have very little issue with saying something like that. You know, I'll have clients who might message me who I coach or patients, and they'll say, hey, I tweaked my back or my knee's aching today, whatever, and I'll have them take something like that. And I might suggest a dose and a frequency, and I'll say, you know, this is to be short-term, say, I'll maybe I'll make, tell them something like... You know if it it gets better in a day to three days then that's awesome if you need to take it for longer than that then let's kind of readdress the situation because maybe we need to modify something about how you're what you're doing in your training Um, if i have people who have chronic issues so if so so if they have long-term issues with certain painful areas um, and they feel like they have to take something like this on a daily basis uh, or more frequently than that over the long period of time then i'm definitely a little bit more hesitant and then i really want to readdress both I get into the pain education kind of thing with them because maybe that alone can reduce their pain such that I can reduce the dose or the frequency that they're using the medication. Um, And I might use, uh, I might modify their training in say using certain style, maybe certain variants or certain programming styles, maybe adjust their intensity or their volume uh, so that they can tolerate it a little better. And then finally, I might switch them if they are a patient of mine from something like an oral NSAID to see if they can get the same kind of benefit, which sometimes they can from using a topical one like diclofenac or Voltaren gel, which is just a topical NSAID that kind of spares you. It has minimal systemic absorption, very low risk of causing uh, kind of those systemic side effects, even when used over the long term. And you can use it up to four times a day. So.
0: Yeah, Voltaire. And I, so I'm the same way with the uh, caveat, nuance, whatever. I, I feel like it's a, <laughs> I'm, I'm just a walking meme. Uh, the, the reason I have people use NSAIDs uh, clinically is if they have an acute pain that I want to make go away right now that's that's my use is that if I give you the ibuprofen or the NSA, whatever NSAID it ends up being now I want within an hour or two a significant reduction in your pain and if that doesn't occur then I, we stop because that's not you know if effectively at that point um you know if that happens over the course of a day or two then I'm saying this pain is not re- unresponsive to to NSAIDs. and and it doesn't mean that we can't ever make it go away it's just we're not treating it, and I see no reason to continue to take a medication that potentially has side effects for for that reason, because you're not treating it. That being said, if it is a musculoskeletal pain, I have high likelihood to believe that ibuprofen is gonna work, and uh, if somebody has that regularly, they have osteoarthritis that, for instance, that um, they need to take something daily, then I'm also in the same boat with a topical sort of, uh, the topical medication. Uh, the NNT for that, the number needed to treat, for Impressive. 1 and 2. Yeah.
1: One and two. Impre- yeah. Impressively well. You would think it wouldn't work as well, but it- <laughs> Yeah.
0: And that's based off this 2015 like Cochrane review, uh, yeah. you know, the huge data set, two huge data set. And so, um, you know, I think the the other interesting thing because this is going to pop up in the comments, well what about fish oil? What about, you know, eating a low omega-6 diet because that decreases production of arachidonic acid and then you don't even get the production of these Pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, yeah, but no, it doesn't. Okay, so uh, <laughs> it, it really doesn't. Um, yeah, it doesn't. That's for the dietary in- input, and then omega three fatty acid intake tends to not have, uh, particularly supplementation, doesn't have any effect on these pain scores, particularly acute pain or osteoarthritic, uh, osteoarthritis, osteoarthritis uh, related pain. If it's rheumatoid, well, that's a different thing. We're dealing with autoimmune disease, and that's that's a that's a different sort of scenario. But I wouldn't recommend taking fish oil because you're in pain. It's unlikely to help. Um, and I wouldn't recommend necessarily avoiding omega sixes for the pain. Uh, you know, sort of, sort of benefit. I, I would recommend eating a diet that's rich in fiber and whole grains and high quality proteins that uh, makes your body fat and body composition and body weight do what you need it to do for your goal set. But uh, other than that, I probably wouldn't wouldn't geek out too much on the diet being the, the cure for your pain because it's unlikely to do so. Yeah. Unless, the other the, unless, other, the other, the
1: other situations that I would mention would be uh, delayed onset muscle soreness is generally not a super inflammatory condition, contrary to a common belief, um, and doesn't tend to respond all that well to something like NSAIDs. Uh, the solution to delayed onset muscle soreness is uh, appropriate programming, um, which 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 includes. Uh, you know an appropriate amount of volume an appropriate amount of frequency appropriate amount of intensity etc
0: this is actually a great time so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a break Uh, we'll come back with part two we're gonna talk about NSAIDs and their effect on muscle strength hypertrophy performance and we will wrap this podcast up all right welcome back to the barbell medicine podcast this is part two we're gonna talk about the effect of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs on strength hypertrophy performance and Austin, so hey man, if I'm taking ibuprofen, you know, I heard, I read that, you know, it's gonna make, it's gonna blunt the effect of training, that it's gonna blunt the effect that I get out of training. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna get as strong, what's the deal? So yeah, this is all very
1: interesting topic and uh, an interesting area of research. And so basically what I tell people when they, because I get asked this kind of stuff a lot, and the way I tend to put it to people is, If the inflammatory response to training, which is necessary, but if that inflammatory response to training consisted exclusively of a COX enzyme mediated pathway, then yeah, NSAIDs would definitely mess with your adaptation. Uh, But it turns out that that, uh, systemic inflammation is a much more complex process, there are probably thousands to millions of molecular mediators of this, receptors involved, enzymes involved, cellular mediators, and so to think that taking uh, particularly a short-term or, or, a shor- or a lower dose of an NSAID uh, is going to result in no gains resulting from your training is a pretty simplistic uh, way to think about it. Uh, because this is not just you know, a, a single target process in terms of the Cox enzyme is just one part of like a massive chain of events that takes place. So the actual impact that you're having on this whole process is fairly small, uh, but there is some kind of, to the extent that there is an effect, there is some interesting literature out there on it. What have you oh found?
0: <laughs> I just, you know, I get frustrated when I read these papers, mainly because the methodology of the training protocols, I just, it, it makes me want to hurt someone. And then I live by myself, so it just ends up being me.
1: <laughs> Not only the so, methods of the training protocols, but sometimes the, the medications themselves, like injecting yeah.
0: into methicin into, into a thigh of a rat yeah, or yeah, something what? like that. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, all right. So this first study that I thought was interesting that directly kind of uh, addresses uh, uh, muscular strength And soreness, for instance. So, this is from the Journal of Applied Physiology and Nutrition and Metabolism from 2008, uh, Krentz et al. So, they had 20 dudes and six chicks. Uh, They did bicep curls, six sets. Of four to ten repetitions but only one arm per day <laughs> and they so then so day one is left arm curl priority day two is right arm curl priority <laughs> and they did this for five days a week which when you think about it that means one arm is getting trained more than the other right yeah <laughs> <laughs> and they trained for six weeks So they were randomized to get either 400 milligrams a day of ibuprofen, which is uh, not a high dose, but it is some dose. Two Uh, of the
1: usual over-the-counter tablets would be 400 milligrams. Usually they're 200 milligram tablets that you get over-the-counter.
0: Yeah. Uh, So they got it after training their uh, arm. Not arms, but they got it after training their arm. Or they got placebo. Uh, And so they measured muscle size with ultrasound, which has been validated, so that's pretty accurate. They measured their 1RM curl strength, which... I, I can't make this up.
1: <laughs> hey, you said they were doing sets of four to six, right, or something like that? Or four what? to ten. Four six to sets ten. of four ah. to ten. Hey, I ah. mean, that means that at some point they were doing fives, which means but, they're going right. to get real strong so, on the curls. Yeah,
0: based, so they averaged out to be fives. <laughs> uh, in any event, they found there was no difference on muscle cross-sectional area. They all increased their muscle cross-sectional area. There was no difference in one-arm strength. They all increased their strength. And there was no difference uh, in ra- uh, rating of soreness. Even if they got the ibuprofen, they still got sore on week one, but then none of them reported soreness on week two. Uh, a couple other interesting things they didn't really report in this paper, but you see in the data. Uh, so the size of the arm didn't really change after the second week, which shows tells you a few things. One, that the training protocol is not sufficient to induce <laughs> uh, net hypertrophy. Continued. Yeah because they're only doing six sets of four to ten, one arm at a time. So you need to induce more fatigue, even though they're training at five days a week, but it's only one arm at a time. So that's the other interesting thing. They didn't have any uh, uh, discussion about the dietary parameters, right? So like, what was the protein intake? For instance, what was the calorie intake? What was the net weight change pre and post? They didn't have any of that. So that's kind of an interesting omission. Um, so, but this is again, exercise science. It, I hesitate to, to say this because there's been a lot of negative sort of you know, oh exercise science is stupid and non-rigorous and this and the other. It's just you have people who are unfamiliar with training who are running the studies, which ultimately leads to studies that make you go, "What the?" F-
1: yeah, they the run f- it and they're like, "Oh, this, you know, we can we can randomize each of the subjects' extremities to this study <laughs> protocol. We See? have four yes. four four different yes. subjects with left arm, right
0: arm, left leg, right leg. It seems reasonable. And then anyone who trains is like, the." F- <laughs> no, no, that doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and you find more and more of that. So if you're actually just looking from a strength perspective, okay, the only thing that you'll find with regards to uh, uh, NSAID administration and strength is, uh, is either no difference than placebo, okay, or a positive impact on strength in, in that the people who take the NSAIDs are actually able to train more uh, regularly, that is their attrition. They, they don't they don't drop out of the study, uh, or they don't uh, not show up for the training. Um, and you see that uh, there's a couple studies that I pulled that had like older patient uh, cohorts that showed that. Uh, and so it's not necessarily. I didn't feel like any of them were like, oh, this is the the premier paper, and we're gonna you know, so I'll leave those out of the stuff that we read. But we're definitely gonna link all the all the stuff that we actually talk about specifically. So did you find anything else where there was like, yo? People got weaker when they took sets because I didn't find any of that. I, I didn't found either no difference or improvement.
1: Yeah, I didn't really find anything impressive in either direction. Even the improvements that you get from this sort yeah, of it's thing very are small, very small. small. But so, so, you know, just for those who are listening whose ears perked up, they're like, I can get stronger if I take these more. It's like, well, that would be pretty stupid to take these just for that purpose.
0: Unless it's gonna, unless it you otherwise can't train, which seems unrealistic. And then, you, and then you'd but, be ta- yeah.
1: if, if if you couldn't train because of pain, then you'd be taking them for a specific purpose. That's what I mean. It's Correct. like if you Correct. if you're Correct. not symptomatic for any reason and you can train with a regu- following a regular program, do just fine. But you want to take these because some study said that you get more gains that way. That'd be pretty dumb. So
0: yeah. Uh, so okay. So for strength, the jury is in on NSAIDs and strength. No real effect unless it allows you to train more regularly. In which case, you'd expect more training. To improve your strength. Yeah, more. That, that would <laughs> be
1: the conclusion of the trial. More training gets you stronger than less training. Weird. Groundbri- groundbreaking Weird. stuff.
0: Yeah, My- shocker, shocker. Okay, <laughs> so moving on to hypertrophy. So uh, I think it's important to again define hypertrophy. Hypertrophy is the increase in existing muscle fiber size. Um, this one probably has the most historic roots. Uh, 2011, Trappy uh, came out with that paper that sa- it basically said, Ibuprofen administration, pre-workout in young folks, decrease their muscle fractional synthesis rate. But did you read that paper? I think you've heard of it. I mean, you've, Yeah, you've, no, might, I've heard of
1: Trappy as the person, but I haven't, you know, torn yeah. that study apart myself. Yeah,
0: so what he didn't look, he looked at it's very short term, right? So do you just look at fractional synthesis, synthetic rate of protein post-workout, not like net muscle protein synthesis over even a 24-hour period, and certainly not even over a week. I don't care. Or muscle size with, itself. Correct. Correct. So no direct outcomes. So, so, so fractional muscle protein synthetic rate is effectively how high your muscle protein synthesis rates get after a workout. And they are high in most populations for up to like 48 hours, elevated above baseline. Okay. So if you're a researcher and you see that it's low at like, or lower than you'd expect at one hour, you can't just go home and say, yeah, it lowers it. You have to measure that out for days and days and days and weeks and see what sort of clinical effect, if any, does it have? Does it actually produce a smaller muscle size? Does it actually produce less muscle protein synthesis over a useful period of time, like a, like a week or a few days? Uh, and, and if so, well, that's interesting. What's more, what's more interesting about this is that, so this paper came out, uh, sorry, the first, that first paper came out in 2002, okay? And, and he basically, the report was We reduce muscle uh, protein synthesis rates by 50% post-workout with pre-workout administration of ibuprofen. Okay, and everyone's like, "Oh no, I'll never take it again." (laughs) 2011 rolls around, so nine years later, he comes out, same author. It says, "Yeah, (laughs) I was just kidding, though." Uh, the only difference, in, which again blows my mind again, <laughs> is that he used old people in the second study. Right. So not even the same study design. Um, so yeah, there was no decrease in pro- protein synthesis rate the second time he tested it and tested it for a longer period of time. And so over, over the course of the day, the, the rates e- equilibrated. And instead of saying, hey, maybe the first paper wasn't terribly accurate, they didn't say that. They said that, yeah, well, maybe because older folks are anabolically resistant that the NSAIDs aided with blood flow because it is a, quote, unquote, you know, blood thinner. It yeah, am, it's it, sort de- of. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> maybe it participates in angiogenesis on some level via that mechanism, although I doubt it. Uh, I don't know. I'm unimpressed. And I hate to be too critical, but it's just like, you did the study, dude. You're responsible for this. and And he didn't i'm 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 not satisfied yeah yeah i
1: think i think that's similar to you know the strength piece is that to the extent that there is an effect it's quite small i think the theoretical mechanism that people if they look into this will see tossed around a whole lot is that uh yeah chronic chronic systemic inflammation in particular is a known inhibitor of muscle protein synthesis and this is uh This is a topic that I talked at length about in that uh, cell signaling lecture that I gave at the coaches conference. um, You know, in terms of mechanisms to either promote or inhibit uh, muscle protein synthesis, and so the cellular inflammatory uh, molecules, or the even the, the sorry, not the cellular inflammatory mediators, or the molecular mediators of inflammation, definitely tend to inhibit muscle protein synthesis. And so, the mechanism that gets tossed around, or the theory that gets tossed around, is that. Older people tend to have, at baseline, more systemic inflammation than younger people, and so that is one of the mechanisms by which they are anabolically resistant. So if you reduce that inflammation in the older person using something like an NSAID to make them more similar, physiologically speaking, as a young person, they might be more sensitive to anabolic stimuli and get muscle protein synthesis. But as you have described in both of these contexts, and strength and muscle mass uh, increase, to the extent that there's an effect, it's quite small. Um, it does not justify taking these medications solely for that purpose in the absence of systems uh, symptoms that you're specifically treating, for sure. And additionally, you know, the older you get above age 60, the more likely you are to actually have side effects to these medicines. So, yep. there's yep.
0: that. Yeah, I think I think that my take-home for this is no, there's no real effect on strength uh, with NSAIDs versus placebo. There, unless, again, you get to train more. And, yeah, more training makes you stronger, not less. Uh, and then, uh, for hypertrophy, it has no effect. Uh, you know, there was a, that rather recent paper that in, in ex, uh, isolated, uh, hormonal tissue I, that was isolated from testicles that if you applied NSAIDs to that, it decreased testosterone production. Meanwhile, meanwhile, <laughs> in vivo in humans. Uh, there's no evidence that NSAID decreases testosterone to a clinically meaningful amount because if your testosterone goes down by 50 points, let's, let's make it more dramatic. It goes down by a hundred points. Yeah. Meaningless. Yes. It doesn't mean anything.
1: We would suggest everyone refer to our prior podcast where you will learn that both there is a massive diurnal variation as well as significant lab error. Uh, so those variations. Yes. Agree. Meaningless.
0: Yes, and unfortunately, Austin and I will not be making any money off any testosterone supplements or getting a million views on a YouTube video about telling you how to raise your testosterone naturally, which is not true and not meaningful. And other than by
1: other than by losing weight, improving your sleep, training, things, things
0: like that. Yeah. Yeah, Although, which, is th-
1: which is stuff you should be doing anyway, not because it improves your testosterone
0: specifically. Right, exactly. Getting your testosterone to go from three hundred to four hundred is meaningless. Getting your testosterone to go from three hundred to seven hundred is meaningless. Getting your testosterone to go from three hundred to nine hundred is meaningless. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. All right, all right. We're gonna go on before I dad gets mad and my camera, you know, I just break it. Okay, so we talked about uh, hypertrophy, strength and hypertrophy. The other thing you get thrown, is seen thrown around, particularly in the literature, is bone mineral density. Like, oh, if you take NSAIDs, that will potentially alter this bone mineral density. So that's what we test to see if someone has like osteoporosis or osteopenia. And the idea is that mechanical loading of the bone causes prostaglandin release, all right? That's one of the hormones uh, one of the factors, cytokines, uh, that uh, affects bone remodeling and that is also affected upstream by NSAIDs. So NSAIDs block that cyclooxygenase uh, enzyme, so you get less prostaglandin release and ultimately less prostaglandins. So the theory was if you take NSAIDs, you're not going to get this bone mineral density improvement from resistance training. Seems unlikely seems unlikely but then but then in 2010 okay so so what happened in 2010 there was this like proof of concept uh study that went down and they took young females and gave them ibuprofen prior to training okay and what did they see decreased prostaglandins weird yeah weird Hmm. okay uh there was a small clinically, or sorry, a small statistically significant difference in bone mineral density as measured in the femur uh, and, and uh, at the proximal hip, uh, but there actually was a greater bone mineral density in the ibuprofen users in the spine, okay? But they thought, oh, maybe this is plausible. We'll run a bigger study okay so here's what happens 2015 in the bone reports which may be my favorite journal name ever this is called timing of (laughs) timing of ibuprofen use and musculoskeletal adaptations to exercise training in older adults so they had 190 60 to 75 year olds previously sedentary adults Uh, they put them in three arms so one part of the trial they would get a placebo before training a placebo after training the second part of the trial they would get ibuprofen 400 milligrams prior to training and a placebo afterwards and the third arm they would get a placebo uh, or sorry, uh, yeah, placebo before training and ibuprofen afterwards. Their theory was that the placebo, the people who either got all placebo or only got the ibuprofen after training would have greater bone mineral density, you know, growth. The strength to the study is that they followed them out for three years, 36 months. Guess what the difference was? None. There's no, not even a statistically significant difference in bone mineral density sites anywhere. Not even statistically significant difference. Which means Certainly no clinically significant difference. There's a difference between clinical uh, and statistical in in this type of analysis. So uh, this was like, you know, uh, nail in the coffin here, uh, which is super interesting. Um, This kind of supports another study, the Canadian multicenter osteoporosis study who basically did the same thing uh, and showed, again, no difference. They did come up with an interesting mechanism, which I'll briefly address. They thought that NSAIDs, would allow a normal bone formation response to mechanical loading all right but that it would uh, prevent inflammatory bone loss so in that so basically they're saying potentially there would be a beneficial effect of taking NSAIDs on bone mineral density although we don't see that turns out that didn't wasn't the case either yeah no apparently Uh, no need to study this anymore (laughs) unless unless it allows you to train okay uh, the other thing that you'll see, and I think you show, you sent me this paper, was on, uh, Barrett Schoenfeld wrote in 2012 about uh, NSAIDs altering satellite cell repair, uh, or satellite cell recruitment. So do so, you want to do the
1: physiology? Yeah, so, so so I can talk about that. So basically what satellite cells are are, they are considered the stem cells of skeletal muscle tissue. And so, you know, you have your... Your myocytes, the skeletal muscle actual cells themselves and they're surrounded by a bunch of little satellite cells that live kind of just outside them, scattered throughout the muscle tissue. And so when you receive a training stress or when they're, you know, damaged in any way, so this is both to intentional kind of mechanical loading training or if you get like a crush injury to your arm or something like that. So when you get that kind of uh, inflammatory repair response that kind of tends to wake up satellite cells and that recruits them into the muscle cell. And so the satellite cell which lives as a kind of a quiescent stem cell, it just kind of lives there forever without really advancing in the cell cycle for cell bio nerds out there. Uh, it, then, it then kind of donates uh, a new nucleus to the muscle, muscle cell itself. So remember that muscle cells, they tend to undergo more hypertrophy. There's very little uh, evidence of muscle cell hyperplasia, where muscle cells would divide in a human. So they grow in size, and when they grow in size, uh, they tend to need more nuclei to kind of govern their territory. This is known as the myonuclear domain theory. And so, all these new, yeah, all these new (laughs) uh, muscle cell nuclei that uh, muscle cell needs come from satellite cells. And so, they're thought to be an essential component of the muscle cellular response to training and to damage or injury. So the idea was, or the question was. To what extent do NSAIDs modify the response of muscle uh, of, uh, of muscle satellite cells to to training?
0: Right, and there's evidence in mice, mice, well, whatever, rats, uh, that uh, <laughs> that if you dose somebody with the NSAIDs that they you're blunting the satellite cell sig- the signal to recruit satellite cells, and so again, people were saying. Oh no, if you take NSAIDs, you're going to get a smaller muscle hypertrophy response through this mechanism. Although, again, that hasn't been borne out by evidence. And then, four years after Schoenfeld wrote that, 2016, Mackie et al., the Journal of the Federation of American Society of Experimental Biology. This is a direct quote. I like it, so I'm I'm going to read it. They, They address this exact issue in vivo, in humans that were resistance training. Our finding was that there was a greater increase in satellite cell content in NSAIDs compared with placebo <laughs> ingestion seven days after a muscle injury stimulus occurred, uh, which is the, it's interesting the way they did this muscle stimu- like injury stimulus thing. They put people on a leg extension and they made them do a bunch of reps to failure. <laughs> like, I imagine the machine was just going... A yeah. <laughs> hundred reps later, they're begging they to verif- get off And the they thing. verified muscle damage by elevation in creatine kinase and that their yeah. counter movement jump was decreased. Yeah. It's reasonable. So they're like, oh, you're fatigued. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so in any event, uh, our findings was that there was a greater increase in satellite cell content compared with placebo ingestion seven days after muscle injury stimulus. Uh, let's see. In addition to the effect on early satellite cell proliferation, the administration of anti-inflammatory medication was observed to accelerate the repair of myofibers in the later stages of regeneration and to mediate a more rapid return of satellite cells and the muscle extracellular membrane gene expression levels to baseline levels. In essence, shifting the entire time course of the satellite cell, myofiber, and muscle uh, extracellular matrix adaptations to a more rapid repair. I don't think that we have any evidence to suggest that taking NSAIDs actually improves recovery, if we're gonna define recovery as the ability to perform at a certain baseline, sure. right? So so if Austin's baseline performance is a 590 squat, let's just say, okay? And he, he undergoes a training event, all right, which stresses him to a certain amount and he can no longer perform that 590 pound squat, right? So he we're looking for him to recover to a point where he can squat 590 again, and that may be a day. Uh, it may be 36 hours. It may be two days. All right. Uh, that doesn't mean that he's adapted to the stimulus of the training. He's, he's just recovered from it and can therefore squat again. I don't think we have any evidence that NSAIDs improve the, that sort of recovery to baseline performance levels. I don't think we have any evidence that NSAIDs uh, actually increase sort of your rate of adaptation either. Sure. I think we have significant evidence that it doesn't really affect anything. <laughs> and that if you need to use it so that you can train productively, it can be useful. Yes. But, I'll but agree. yeah, so that's kind of like the take home for me. I think that all these mo- mole- these uh, molecular pathways are super interesting if you want to geek out about. Uh, but, you know, the second step you have to take after identifying the molecular pathway is, well, what does this actually mean? Like in real life? Yeah. Why do I care about this? Exactly. Yeah. Should I care about this? And, uh, can confirm, don't care. So my, 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 I think the take home message is this, and, and you can, you can add on your, your parting shots to this. So from an NSAID perspective, if you need to take them in order to train productively, cool. Uh, I don't think they confer any advantage to folks when they're not taking it for a particular reason. I think you stated that like at least three different times, but it bears repeating. Uh, and then I think that it's unlikely to cause any detriment. Um, the, only outstanding sort of thing that we, we didn't really address here, but I would I just include this in my parting thoughts, is that people will say, yeah, well, you talked about muscle strength and hypertrophy and bone mineral density. You have, what about like a tendonitis, tendinosis, you know, uh, soft tissue injury? If I take NSAIDs, that's going to, you know, decrease the enzymatic activity at that level. But we don't see that either there's, I'll, I'll link the paper for you guys to read it. You know, I don't, I don't think we have time to read for me to read this entire, like, you know, long winded response, but you don't see that in the data either. So
1: it'd be great. It'd be great if we had a magic pill to reduce or improve tendinopathy, but tendinopathy is just plain and simple. It's a long-term process. It takes long-term to develop and it takes long-term to heal from a pain, from a symptom standpoint. And so Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with what you said there Um, outside of kind of inflammatory related or acute acute pain. um, You know, if you need to take it for a short term at the lowest dose that works for you, I think that's a that's a good idea if you feel that you need to take it over a longer period of time. I would just quickly, briefly take a step back and say is there something that I'm doing that is continuing to irritate this particular thing? Is there something I can alter with my programming, my training, my re- you know outside recovery issues? Do I have some sort of untreated chronic pain syndrome or something like that that needs to be dealt with that would result in me not, me not needing to take these over the long term? Um, the older you are, the more other medical conditions you have, the more pregnant you are, I would not recommend taking these things uh, in those situations um, for various for, for various reasons, particularly over the long term, but at all for pregnancy, really. So, um, yeah, I think those are my main take home points.
0: I I have no disagreements. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Barbell Medicine podcast. Make sure to check out our guided program if you're interested. Make sure to check out our press template if you're interested in going overhead, and all the links to everything we talked about right in the description below or the show notes a, if you're
1: Oh yeah! Give us an iTunes review on on the podcast. I don't think we've 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 uh, plugged that in a while. Yeah,
0: help us That's out. Help us. Help us. <laughs> That's help, all there us is to. help you. Yeah. All right. Cool, man. We'll see you later. Right. See you.